you'll stand for the scripture reading, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And then he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let's pray. God, again, just thank you for um, your word and for the revelation it is of yourself and of your ways. You've given this to us that we might know you and worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray, God, that we would hear you and yield to you in love and faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I appreciate um, Peter Reed and Charles Price standing in for me the last couple of weeks. We've been very busy at his hill, and I could have preached, but um, it's just wonderful having those guys around. I thought it'd be good for us to hear from them, and I appreciate that they were available to do that. Um, you know, ever since COVID, I guess, we've been using this camera and I always forget that it's there, and I tend to just talk to the people that are in the room, which can get me in trouble, because others don't necessarily know the context and all. Um, but I do appreciate all those that listen and watch, um, and I wanted to give a shout out especially to Andy and Mia Wong that are down in New Zealand. They're from China. They're kind of adopted kids of the Schaefer's. Um, they were in China because they had to leave the States, and then miraculously they were able to get out again, and now they're in New Zealand. Just a wonderful couple, so um, hi to Andy and Mia. You probably weren't expecting that, but um, yeah. This is an amazing um, portion of Scripture here. Um, it really shows Elijah in his true humanity, and I'm so thankful that God does that in the Bible with the people that he um, records. He doesn't um, put them on pedestals. He doesn't shine them and make them better than they are. He just shows us for exactly how they are, warts and all. And that's especially good because Elijah is such a powerful presence in Scripture. We see him not only in the Old Testament, but as well in the New Testament. Um, um, Jesus says that, he, that John the Baptist is Elijah come again. Um, it looks as though one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation will be someone coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, just as John the Baptist did. 
But Elijah actually appeared in person in the New Testament. He was one of the two that was on the Mount of Transfiguration that appeared when Jesus was there. Highly significant person in Scripture. And yet, James says he was a man with a nature just like us. I like that. And when you come to this passage, you see that his nature is not exempt from depression. And even so much depression that he wishes to die. We had a professor in Bible college, Mr. Hatch, affectionately known as Buck Hatch. And if he had a spiritual gift, it was probably melancholy. Um, <laughs> he just appeared to be the most depressed guy um, walking around. Long, skinny, gaunt man that walked, stooped over. And he just looked as though he had never had a good day in his life. And I'll never forget, after we came back from Christmas break one year, he was preaching in chapel. And we're in January, early in January, and he gave this powerful message. And the title of it was, Tis the Season to be Depressed. <laughs> and he went on to explain, and he says, you know, holidays for, for most of us are joyful times. Um, but in January, the bills come in. And all those presents you put on the credit card, now you have to start looking at the bills. And the family is gone, and the memories of what you thought would be sweet times often are not so sweet times after all. And it can be a time of real depression. And coming from a guy who really struggled with depression, it was an especially powerful message. And another thing I remember about that message is he says, you never know how God's grace is operating in another person's life. And he says, for some people, just getting out of bed in the morning is a miracle. And it's so true, isn't it? Others are just always happy-go-lucky, optimistic, bounce out of bed in the morning. That was my dad. I didn't like it. Um, he would walk through the hallway early in the morning banging on everybody's doors, up and at them, up and at them. And I thought to myself, if I ever marry, it will not be a morning person. And Patsy is not a morning person, and I'm so glad. I'm not, personally, if you know me, you know that I'm not the eternal optimist. Um, I tend to see um, through a glass darkly. Um, I see the glass as being half empty, not half full. I've said many times that my favorite Winnie the Pooh character is Eeyore, the <laughs> depressed donkey. Um, even my blood type is negative. <laughs> so to get on this end of the story here, and it's true, <laughs> it's negative. Um, you remember in chapter 18 that Elijah has been used by God to call down fire from heaven and to see the 450 prophets of Baal killed. The whole nation turns back to the Lord. And Elijah prays for rain, and the rain comes. And he even outruns a chariot to get to Jezreel. That was all chapter 18. Powerful time. Well, he was in Jezreel ahead of Ahab, clearly for the purpose of of finishing off Baal by killing Jezebel. But he didn't. He went to Jezreel, supernaturally enabled by God, he outran a chariot. The man's not dumb. 
He knows this was not just to keep him from getting wet. That God wanted him ahead of Ahab so that Jezebel could be put to death without Ahab's resistance. And he could have easily done it. All he had to do, because when Je- remember when Jezebel finally was put to death, all that happened was that Jehu just looked up at her window and said, who's on my side? Who's on my side? And two or three of the officers standing there looked at him. That was all he needed. And he said, throw her out the window. So they chunked her out the window. And she was dead when she hit the ground. Elijah could have been the person to do this. God raised him up to do this. God had him outrun the chariot to do this. And he knows it. But for some reason, he doesn't. And he cowers in fear. And he gets to Jezreel and he hides. Jezebel doesn't even know he's in the city until Ahab shows up. Wouldn't that have been a time to be a fly on the wall? I would have loved to have witnessed this. I don't know why they don't make movies out of this. He comes skidding in in his chariot. The rain's starting to come down. She's out there probably dancing in the rain because as far as she knows, the prophets of Baal finally accomplished what they're paid to do. They brought rain. (laughs) And she's praising Baal. And here comes the husband sliding in in his chariot, hops down, So good to see you're alive. What do you mean I'm alive? And and she goes, look, the prophets, they brought the rain. In fact, they're not even coming home. What do you mean? Well, they're dead. They're dead. Yeah, Elijah, we had this contest. And by the way, all those WWBD bracelets, they're gone. (laughs) Nobody's buying those anymore. What are you talking? Well, Elijah, I thought, you know, you've seen him. Oh, man, did you know that guy could run? He just beep beep right by me. He came here. He's here. She, she knew none of this. He's here? Yeah, and I kind of thought maybe you'd be dead. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So she knows exactly where he is. For three and a half years she has searched the earth for this man to kill him. And he is in her city. And she knows exactly where he is in the city. But all she says is, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Bluff. If she thought that she could kill him, after three and a half years of trying to find this man and kill this man, she's failed, and she has come to the conclusion that she can't kill him. So all she can do, hopefully, is scare him. By this time tomorrow, you've got 24 more hours. I'm going to kill you. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. Now, he would have run. This would have been in the evening, at night. And again, the rain is is pouring outside. And so he runs all night through the rain and goes all the way down to Beersheba, leaves his servant there, and he runs an entire another day. He ran. He was afraid. When Elijah is introduced to us, we've never heard of him, know nothing about him, just he's from the settlers of Tishba in the land of Gilead. That's all we know. And he stands before the most ruthless evil king that Israel has ever had and ever will have. 
and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, it shall not rain except by my word. Supreme confidence. No fear in the man. Just stands and boldly says, This is what is going to happen. And he had that confidence. He had that faith because he was standing on what God had said. Now, three and a half years later, the man has seen two miracles a day, every day, for that entire time. We're in the thousands of miracles. And he runs for his life because he's afraid. So I ask you, do signs and wonders sustain our faith? It didn't sustain Elijah's. He was seeing signs and wonders twice a day for three and a half years. And he ran for his life. It is not the miraculous that sustains our folks, our faith, folks. It is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man hears, not man sees. A man hears and believes, and he is saved. It is the word of God that sustains us, not miracles. So he ran all that next day. It's been 36 hours since the man has slept. He hasn't eaten, has had nothing to drink. He's been under intense pressure, all kinds of emotional um, strain. Small wonder that he sits down under a juniper tree and he says to God, let me die. It is enough. I'm done. Take my life. I don't know if you've ever been there. More than likely, if you have gray hair, there's probably been, you've had a time or more like this. If you're an introvert, one of the things you do as an introvert is that you stuff your anger instead of expressing your anger. And I'm no psychologist, but I can tell you from personal experience that stuffing your anger just produces depression. And so it seems that introverted people are maybe a little more prone to depression. But you don't have to be an introvert to experience what Elijah is experiencing here. It's something that we are all capable of. And I think all of us, sooner or later, will experience times in life where we just would rather die. We see this in David. We see it in Moses, Peter, Paul. It's hard to find any person in the Bible did not, who did not at one point or another truly suffer from depression. Paul said, we despaired of life itself. And he said, we, not just himself, but he's speaking of the other apostles as well. Very common malady. Oswald Chambers said, if we did not have the, have the capacity for depression, neither would we have the capacity for exaltation. And God has made us that he might be exalted, freely exalted. And so he had to give us the whole range of emotions, the whole spectrum, including the possibility of depression, that God would be chosen to be freely exalted. 
It's not a tendency that is necessarily sin, and it is not a tendency that goes away as you mature in the Lord. We will always have the tendency to be greatly despondent, dejected, and depressed. There are a number of things that can cause it, and I don't want this whole message to be about depression because that would be depressing. But I would say, just from looking at the life of Elijah here, clearly his depression was in part due to the physical state that he is in. He's exhausted, he is hungry, he is spent in every way. He is just spent. I didn't ask Patsy for permission, but we were talking about this last night, and she said, are you going to talk about me on Sunday tomorrow? So I don't know. I never know what I'm going to say. But um, Patsy has not been prone to depression whatsoever, and I'm thankful for that. It's enough to have to live with myself. <laughs> um, but when our kids were little, she really, really struggled. And um, struggled with even wondering if she was even saved. Struggled with wanting to continue on. It was a very, very dark time. Um, exhaustion was a major contributor of that. Just utter exhaustion. As only mothers with young children can understand. And we had four in four and a half years and three of them in diapers. <laughs> It was hard, really hard. Sometimes the cause of depression, in other words, is not spiritual. It's physical. We need rest. We need sleep. We need to get outside in the sunlight. I have a friend. Um, she married a Canadian. She's from South Texas. And so they spent the first several years of their marriage living in Canada, British Columbia, where it rains all the time. And she got depressed. And she was in a bad state. She couldn't understand it. She said, why is this happening? I, I, didn't, I didn't think that I was this unspiritual. Really never was able to figure out what was going on. It wasn't that she missed home or anything like that. She wonderful husband and wonderful life and just really, really struggling. They moved back to South Texas, depression gone. And she came to realize it was the lack of sunlight. She just needed more sun. Nothing spiritual, just a physical thing going on. That is often the case. But because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, what impacts us physically can impact us spiritually and vice versa. Medication. For all the good that medication is, medication can cause depression. When I was taking pain medication for, I think it was my neck, um, my doctor came in for a checkup, follow-up, and he started asking me all kinds of questions that he'd never asked before. He, was, he asked me, Are you, you know, are you having any bad days? Not really. My neck hurts. Um, thinking about taking your life? Oh, no. Why would you ask me that? I said, Doc, I've known you for a long time. You've never asked me this before. And he goes, well, you've never been on this medication before. Oh, okay. So sometimes medication. 
But here's something that I didn't like when I first read it. And this is not physical. A word about hearing things that you don't like and reacting strongly when you've never heard that before. God might be talking to you. When I was in high school, we had a youth leader who told us he was very much against rock music. Now, if you're my age, you can remember rock music from the 70s, and it was pretty tame. I mean, we're talking Beach Boys. <laughs> and and he, was, he railed against it and said, listen, I will happily disconnect your car radios for you. And I thought, dude, you ever touch my car? We really got a problem. <laughs> and I had to think about that. Why am I reacting so strong? Maybe I've got a problem with music. Maybe it's an unyielded part of my life. So I was reading my favorite devotional, my most verse highest. I think I was in college. And I came across this statement where he says, dejection stems from one of two sources. I have either satisfied a lust or I have not had it satisfied. In either case, dejection is the result. Lust means I must have it at once. Spiritual lust causes me to demand an answer from God instead of seeking God himself who gives the answer. Dejection is because I've either had a lust satisfied or I have not. That made me mad. And I'm thinking, my depression is more serious than that. And I don't know that it's self-induced. But I recognized it was something I needed to take to God. So I can't speak for everybody. But I took this to God. God, why do I get dejected so easily? Why am I so prone to depression? Is what this man says true of me? And I heard the Lord say, yes. And so many times, virtually, I wouldn't say every time, but most of the time since then that I have gone into dejection or to depression, I've asked the Lord, and it's always so clear, is this because I have had a lust satisfied or a lust denied? And virtually every time, for me, that has been the case. I'm upset because I'm not getting what I want. And I stuff it, and that anger becomes depression. Or something that I've really wanted has happened, and it doesn't satisfy me. And I'm depressed, because what I was putting my hope in doesn't fulfill me. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't, not only does he not fulfill Elijah's request, he doesn't even talk about it. He doesn't even respond to it. He says, let's just ignore this. <laughs> Not so with Joshua. Remember when Joshua was depressed? They fought against the city of Ai, and they were defeated because Achan had stolen some stuff from Jericho. And Joshua says he fell on his face to the dirt, and he cried out to God until evening. 
And he's going, oh, God, how can we go on? Oh, God, this is, a, this, is, this is a terrible day. Your name is being blasphemed. Oh, God. He's just so, man, he is just in the dirt, literally. And that evening, God finally says to him, get up. Stand up and act like a man. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. Stop it. Just stop it. And get on with what God has given you to do. And if there's sin, confess it. Deal with it. So it's what had, what is what, just what had to happen with Joshua. What God did do, instead of taking his life, is he fed him. Verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. This would have been supper. So nice of God to take care of him like this. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a 16-ounce ribeye <laughs> with fresh steamed green beans, loaded baked potato, sweet tea, a jug of it. No. The man's depressed. He wants to die. This is when you give him his last meal, his best meal, right? And what does God give him? And behold, a bread cake. The same thing he ate twice a day with this widow. Another flour tortilla with water to wash it down. I would have just gone, God, where's my knife? I'll do it myself. I mean, just, un just there's something about these tortillas here. That God, in his depression, gives him another tortilla. Oh, my word. He eats it, lays down, still depressed. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came to him a second time, saying, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And we don't know what God fed him, but because it doesn't say the menu changed, I think we can assume what? It's another tortilla for breakfast. Have a good day. <laughs> another tortilla. And he went in the strength of that for 40. Why? Why that verse? Because we're being told that this is the supernatural provision of God, even though there is nothing spectacular, nothing sensational about it. A piece of bread sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a miracle. And then God says to him when he comes down to Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah has this little speech prepared. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and torn down thine altars and killed thy prophets with the sword. <laughs> oh God, and I am the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. Boo-hoo. And we know he's got this memorized because he says the exact same thing in verse 14. So he is just filled with self-pity. A man with a nature just like ours. I like to say a pity party is the one party that you can never have too many people at. Right? Oh, man, just come and have pity with me. I've oh, so my life is so miserable and everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. And that's when mom says, get over yourself. I didn't want mom to say, get over yourself. I wanted to say, oh, son, you're so <laughs> I agree. You're a loser. No. 
It's as though God says, okay, I can't even talk to this man anymore. I just, he's gone stupid, so I'm just going to show him pictures. So he shows him three pictures. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now that is a wind. This wind was breaking up the mountains. Not going around the mountains, not going over the mountains. It was crashing through the mountains and breaking the mountains. I've never seen a wind like that. Went through a few hurricanes growing up in Corpus. We watched the hurricanes on TV. Boy, they always make the news, don't they? Got that weatherman hanging on to the stop sign and he's blowing sideways. And so why are you there? Wind makes the news. After the wind, which the Lord was not in, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake either. Earthquakes make the news. Goodness. I've never been through a serious one, but I, I've been through a couple of small tremors. I remember being down in Costa Rica one time, and we're in our, in our little apartment that we, were, um, that we lived in while we were there for the week, and, and there's a Costa Rican gal that's there visiting us, and the room shakes, and she just bolts. And we're going, we didn't even know what we were feeling. And then it was over, and uh, no big deal. But boy, we were on the phone to our kids. We went through an earthquake today. Earthquakes make the news. The Lord wasn't in it. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. Fires make the news. I mean, British Columbia, you know, it's on fire constantly. I don't know why there's even a British Columbia left. It's always on fire. And we always hear about it. You know, British Columbia's burning up. Australia's burning up. Always makes the news. What do these three things have in common? They're sensational, spectacular, not like the flour tortillas. And God wasn't in any of them. But after the, the earthquake and the fire and the mighty wind, there was a sound of a gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him one more time asking, what are you doing here? Now this gentle blowing is the same word that's used in, in Genesis when it says that God used to walk with Adam in the cool of the evening. The phrase, the cool of the evening, is the same thing as being said here. And so Elijah would have understood this, that this is the presence of God in the gentle breeze. There is nothing sensational about a gentle breeze. It happens every day. We don't write home about it. In fact, if one of our students texted their parents and said, we need to FaceTime today, it's urgent. Please, as soon as possible, FaceTime me. 
So the parents quit whatever they're doing and they FaceTime their kid and they go, what, what, what is it? Are you well? I'm, I'm, I'm the best day of my life. I just had to share it with somebody. Well, what, what happened? It's, it's so hard for me. I just can't even get the words out. But today, I mean, just dad, I'm mom. I just, I'll never have another day like this again. This is the most amazing day. Well, what happened? <laughs> it's just so hard for me to express. But I was outside and, and there was this gentle breeze. And mom and dad are going to be thinking, they're in a cult. And they're losing their mind. We're going to come rescue them. Nobody gets excited over a gentle breeze. But God was in the breeze. Now here's what I think the lesson is. You can't, a breeze can be present and yet so slight that you can't feel it on your skin. You can't hear it. You can't see it rustle a leaf. But if you'll get in the shade, especially after you've been sweating, and just stand in the shade, when you would swear there is no breeze, but just stand in the, in the shade, and you'll realize there is a breeze. I've told the students I have a friend that's a bow hunter, and he has this big, ugly piece of lint that he's taken out of his dryer hanging from his bow. And he says the last thing he does before he releases the arrow is to check the lint. Because he said, Charlie, there's always a breeze. Even when you can't feel it, see it, or hear it, it's there. You can see where this is going. Just like God and his presence. You can't see him, can't hear him, can't feel him, but he's present. He is with us. This is what Elijah is missing. He has, understandably, because he's a man with a nature just like ours, he has gotten his eyes on the spectacular. And he thinks that the miracles of God are the big deal of life. And the big deal of life is God himself, his presence. That's what he has gotten his eyes off of, the miracle of God's presence. And we treat God's daily indwelling presence. As Christians, we do this. We're the most blessed people on the planet because of God's indwelling presence. And yet we treat His presence like flour tortillas and gentle breezes. We love the psalm that says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for thee. That's a lie. What our souls long for, if truth be told, is the activity of God, not God. We feel like if, my, if, if I can't point to how God is using me, then why am I even living? He's using other people. He's doing nothing in my life. My life is a disaster. Everybody else's life is a success. Woe is me. I might as well eat a can of worms. And we long for his activity. Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why aren't you working in my kids? Why aren't you working in my marriage? Right? Depression. Because we're looking for God to do big things in our lives. We all do. It's human nature. And we treat God himself, his abiding presence, as though it's just tortillas and gentle breezes. We look for visions from heaven and for earth-shaking events to see God's power. 
Even the fact that we are dejected is proof that we do this. Yet we never realize that all the time God is at work in our everyday events and in the people around us. If we will only obey and do the task that He has placed us closest to, we will see Him. One of the most amazing revelations of God comes to us when we learn that it is in the everyday things of life that we realize the magnificent deity of Jesus Christ. When we are in an unhealthy condition, either physically or emotionally, we always look for thrills in life. In our physical life, this leads to efforts to counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. In our emotional life, it leads to obsessions and to the destruction of our morality. In our spiritual life, if we insist on pursuing only thrills, on mounting up with the wings like of eagles, it will result in the destruction of spirituality. Having the reality of God's presence is not dependent on our being in a particular circumstance or place, but is only dependent on our determination to keep the Lord before us continually. Our problems arise when we, when we refuse to place our trust in the reality of His presence. The experience of the psalmist speaks of, we will not fear. That will be ours when we are grounded on the truth of the reality of God's presence, not just a simple awareness of it, but an understanding of the reality of it. Then we will exclaim, He has been here all the time. This is what God is after. Concerning self-pity, this same author says, What does it matter if circumstances are hard? Why should they not be? If we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery, we banish God's riches from our own lives and hinder others from entering into His provision. And then he says, No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it obliterates God and puts self-interest upon the throne. It opens up our mouths to spit out murmurings and our lives become craving spiritual sponges. There is nothing lovely or generous about them. So true. Sadly true. The psalmist says, and David was so familiar with depression. He says in Psalm 69, reproach has broken my heart. And I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and from my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, which makes it seem this is a messianic passage. And it starts with reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. In Psalm 73, whom, we ha whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. Psalm 116, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Psalm 119, 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. 
Verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. How is the depression lifted? Sometimes it means just getting a good night's rest, eating a good meal, getting in the sunlight, getting some exercise. Sometimes it means coming back to God's word, getting into God's word, reading it prayerfully. There is also the element of rejoicing, just choosing to give thanks. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Sometimes it's choosing to think on the things that are worthy of God and not just getting our mind always obsessed with all that's wrong. I enjoy reading the news, but there is no good news in the news. And we can spend way too much time looking at how bad things are and our minds not focusing on what is true. Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I cried to the Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to thy name. I appreciate Psalm 42, where it does say, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for thee. My soul thirsts for God. That's where God wants us to be, for the living God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Not for the help of his deliverance from all my problems, but for the help of his presence, which we have. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, remember, I remember thee from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from the Mount Misar, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And same in the next psalm. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him the help of my countenance and my God. There is an element sometimes where depression is a place we want to stay. God a second time says to him, what are you doing here? Why are you in this place? And he goes right back to his self-pity speech. And the Lord goes, okay, I hear you. What you're saying is, Elijah, you will not obey me when it comes to getting rid of Baal and in particular killing Jezebel. Okay. God does take no for an answer. God's grace can be resisted. And he is resisting God. And he is saying, no more. That's his choice. And in choosing that, he doesn't realize that he's choosing to step further back into the darkness. 
I have to many times ask myself, why am I in darkness? And again, many times in my case, it's because I'm choosing darkness. And I'm not choosing the light of God's presence. So God said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abba-Mahalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. But it shall come about. Now that wasn't the, the, the big news. I mean that Because this is what he wanted. He is okay with another prophet taking his place. He is done. If he wants to die, he doesn't have any problem with somebody taking his place. That's not the, the big news here, the big revelation. The big revelation is verse 17. And it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Wake up. You are not the only one. You are too big for yourself. See, that's the problem. Much of Elijah's depression has come because he is thinking too much of himself. He's gotten too big. His eyes are on himself. And he is in and he, he's all these miracles. And yet his eyes, the miracles, are causing him to think he is indispensable. If the world needs miracles and you're the miracle worker, then you're indispensable. And, he is, and his, even sometimes our low opinion of ourselves is because we are thinking too much of ourselves. Not just too frequently, but too much. And it's just, it's amazing how even it's, it's, it's hating yourself, self-loathing can be an expression of pride. And this is no different with Elijah. And so when God says to him, and by the way, buckaroo, I've got 7,000 others besides you. Oh, my word. That's the turning point for Elijah. That's where he really sees how wrong I have been. God is doing infinitely more than anything that I can ask or think. This unseen, invisible God is at work mightily in this world. And I thought I was the only one left. How stupid is that? There aren't many people that preach about the indwelling life of Christ. Sometimes people say, well, torchbearers is about the only ministry doing that, which is not true. One time a guy came, the guy that did this told me, because he, he, he did it, he went to Major Thomas, he'd really been, been reading Major Thomas's books, The Saving Life of Christ, If I Perish, I Perish, The Mystery of Godliness, listening to Major preaching, really just come to deeply understand it and embrace the truth of Christ living in us. And so he went to Major Thomas and, Major, does it just sometimes seem to you that maybe you and I are the only ones that get it? And Major looked at him and just said, are you kidding me? You think we're the only people on the planet that know that only Jesus is life and that Christ is their life. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And just rebuked him. But see, that's, that's the capacity we have for self-absorption. And that is the recipe for depression, to be absorbed with ourselves. And if we would just come to understand that the sovereign, omnipotent, infinite, eternal God lives in us. 
He will never leave us, never forsake us. He loves us. There is no bigger deal than him. Everything else just becomes pretty small, doesn't it? As big as our problems are, and I'm not saying they're not big, massive problems that I certainly can't fix, but as big as our problems are, if they are, if they are Alps, if they are Mount Everest, they aren't even pimples to God in comparison to His presence. And that's what Elijah is now seeing. My God is infinitely bigger than anything I thought, and He is with me. If He never fixes a single problem, I have God. And in having God, I have everything. I'm not there. I'd like to be. But I believe this is where God wants all of us to be. A little less self-absorbed. And a lot more aware of how big our God is. And as dark as things are in this world, and they're getting darker, we know how it ends. And we know our God is in absolute control. And the worst that anybody can do to us is just send us on our way to Him. And that's not a bad thing. I'll close this in prayer. God, I just, the last thing I want to do is to be trite with big problems that so many of us have. But Lord, neither do I want any of us to be guilty of enlarging these problems and making them bigger than you in your presence. We do cry out to you, God. From the dust, we cry out to you that you would help us, that you would rescue us. But we acknowledge, as the psalmist did, the presence of God is our help. And should you never alleviate the problems, Lord, I pray that we would still long for you, that we would recognize the longing of our souls in its most deepest recesses is not for your activity. It is for you. And I pray, God, that we would not try to conjure up the emotion of feeling your presence, but that we would just reckon that you are with us and you are in us and you will never leave us or forsake us, regardless of how we feel, that we would stand on the truth of your word. And I thank you, God, that you yourself are our deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.